You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lori R. King is the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Game, and The Art of Detection. Her new novel is Touchstone. Nadia Gordon is the author of Sharpshooter, the first of her Sonny McCoskey Napa Valley Mysteries. Shell Games by Kirk Russell features John Marquez, who works in the Special Operations Unit of the California Department of Fish and Game. Nina Ravor's Southland is a mystery novel set in Los Angeles during the 1940s, 60s, and 90s. They're all featured in in Mysterious California, the new movie by Pamela Beer Biggs. It's a documentary that explores the connections between mysteries and place. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, one of the things about mystery novels that is really interesting, and, and I'm, many a mystery writer has told me about this, is that they really like that the detective has access to all levels of society, from the lowest to the highest. And one of, the, one of the things that this allows you to do when you're exploring a place and setting your novels in a place is to explore all aspects of that place. I think that's true. I, I know that I love, to, uh, I love to come up with bizarre, uh, bizarre places, well, preferably bizarre places, um, and plunk my characters down in there. It's a great excuse, especially for um, being nosy and asking questions of people. Nadia, your novels are, are set in Napa, and, and Napa is is one of the most place-like places. Uh, it's a really, almost, it is a trademark place, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a trademark experience and lifestyle. Uh, but yeah, of course, when I write my books, I enjoy that same sort of super access that my character does. I get to go around and march into people's back rooms and wine cellars and it gives you know writing the books is fun because it gives me the same excuse that she has to you know ask the unaskable questions and uh, go ahead and request access to all the places that you're not supposed to really request access to. It's, it's really very fun. Uh, are the levels of Napa as stratified as some of the other places, or is it all cluster around the middle? I mean, are there some real low rent parts of Napa? Sonoma? Oh, absolutely! It's it's extraordinarily stratified. It's the the class system is um, for better or worse alive and well in wine country. And that's, you know, it's a lot of the fun of it. Um, It's also nice to juxtapose those. You know, there are some great taquerias in Napa where you can sit down next to, you know, somebody who's just flown in to oversee the release of, you know, their next great Cabernet. And I think that's one of the charms of the place. Um, And at the other end, you know, it took years of exploring and meeting and working to finally get a good place in the Napa Wine Auction. You know, so these sort of doors remain closed for a long time. Kirk, one of the things that intrigued me about your novels is that they're set not just in one place, but in a, a, an equally definable place, the, the Pacific Coast Highway roads of South California going up and down in, in the coast. It's a, a really a place with a lot of character, but not a single place. Yeah, no, but that's where this undercover team, the LCU, it's it's the country they moved through. So it was it was necessary, of course, to set the novels there. the The thing that I wanted to try to do, um, 
most was was right the land and uh, those those stretches are are the opportunity to do that but going back to your first question about about this the sort of the stratus of society or people you get to meet or a character gets to interact with in in a novel or in these crime fiction novels that's that's an aspect that I, I've uh, from hanging around with this team watching how they work their way from you know, kind of low-level criminals, or just some some divers trying to make it, up to middle middlemen who are back in the city, and you know, maybe on several restaurants, up to you know another level of fairly wealthy individuals that are exporting or Im- importing. It's it's watching them undercover and watching that that interaction, and then and then trying to write it is, was uh, was a lot of fun. Nina, in your books. It- the the connections between the upper and and lower strata is is one of the the real uh, men linchpins because the the place where your novel set the now you get to call it the holiday bowl um, is a place where people of, of different uh, classes and different colors were were have been meeting for years. Yes, it's uh, the Southland is set in the Crenshaw District, which is this this gathering or kind of organically developed gathering place where uh, African Americans and Japanese Americans, primarily, but people of all cultural and racial backgrounds, as you said, uh, live live together. Uh, it was it all all centering around this place, the Holiday Bowl, which was a bowling alley and coffee shop um, that was built in the 1950s. And in my case, talking about strata and access, you know, the, the main protagonist is this upper middle class Japanese American uh, young woman who's about to be a lawyer, who's really out of, the, 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 the death, the mystery is, is a kind of catalyst to actually make her go back and learn about her family history. She has actually no interest in this neighborhood. She wants to move on and you know become a corporate lawyer and be rich and has no interest in, in um, her family's past or her own history. And so the, the mystery um, catalyst actually is, is my device to make her go back and, and discover some of, some of the, um, the events in, in her own past and in the past of this neighborhood. Well, it, that suggests that, and it's true, that we're defined by where we came from. If we don't understand where we came from, we really can't understand ourselves. And, and place in, in mystery really helps you develop your characters, doesn't it? Yes, and in in all of my books, the, the the three of them are set set in Los Angeles. I really try, you know, L.A. almost is a, is a character, and there's this conception of, about L.A. that it's really you know only about Hollywood or it has no interesting um, history to it. And to me, the the real interesting parts of Los Angeles are in the the neighborhoods, um, the individual neighborhoods, the histories of of, of people and families who live in those neighborhoods. Um, so it's uh, you know I think there's just an endless amount of of uh, st- stories that that can be found in those places. Lori, with your novels, one of the things that that interests me, especially the art of detection, is you're not just going upper and the the lower and upper parts of San Francisco. You're st- straddling time, and it's a it's a personal issue for you, isn't it? Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's all personal. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That that was one of the fun things about. Um, about doing the research for the part of the book that is historical, that you find areas in San Francisco that really have, have not changed significantly. And the fact that <clears throat> the, the, the character gets involved with the, the subcultures of um, certain areas of San Francisco, that, that really you could walk into the same club now and it would be very similar. Um, so yeah, I mean, partly the, the downtown San Francisco area, and, and also the, um, the headlands, the Marin headlands. Um, 
lend their own quality to the to the narrative. Well, one of the things that uh, Nina just said that made me think is that um, landscape really is a character in many mystery novels, and it's a plays a really uh, critical part. And, and the character of uh, Napa <laughs> is is kind of quirky. And one of the things that that is in, interests me is there's kind of a battle between Napa and Sonoma, uh, a, 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 cl- a culture clash that's been unfolding there. Uh, does that play a part in your book and help define your character itself? You know, it comes into the books a little bit. I, I'm working on the fourth one now, so it, that issue has come up. You know, Napans really feel like, you know, Napa Valley is it, and people who cross the mountains over to Sonoma really feel like, you know, those Napa people don't give the proper respect, you know? <laughs> and there is a little bit of that that comes in, but... Uh, my own view, and I'm sure it's shared by a lot of people up there, it's, it's not really terrifically different, and it's less different all the time, frankly. That difference, I think, was bigger when Napa had really come on strong in the wine industry, and Sonoma was sort of viewed as this hick town, you know, and um, farmers and stuff. And now it's that, again, it has that Napa cachet. The farmer has become, become uh, you know, that's your badge of honor. You're a farmer, and their, their wines have... They've been producing, you know, award-winning, fantastic, you know, globally respected wines. So there's, they're, they're more, there's parity now between the two valleys more, I think, than there used to be. So those rivalries are less, but people still like to play with them. Does the uh, landscape itself influence your, the, the character of your detective? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, she has a sort of visceral, physical connection almost with uh, certain mountains around her home. You know, Mount Vitor in particular, when she's driving up Mount Vitor, she kind of has this, um, you know, the sensation of relaxation. It's like coming home. This, uh, when she goes to see her friends up on Mount Vitor, you can really tell that this is her retreat. This is, it's almost religious somehow, you know. And then when she goes back into the, down into the valley to her restaurant and it's all commerce and work and uh, these days murder, you know. So that, I think it has a really tremendous effect on her. Kirk, your novels are, are it described as echo thrillers, and the ecology certainly suggests the, the importance of place in their novels. How does that, and they define your main character's job? Yeah, I mean, absolutely define his job, and, and, and they're crime stories, of course, and it's crime fiction, but the, there, there is a theme, obviously, and, and uh, the land and the animals that are, that are in, in these novels are you know, kind of the quiet victim that's going on in the background. So yeah, it's a character. Uh, there, there, there are three species in California, abalone, bear, and sturgeon that, that make up the roughly $100 million in black market uh, traffic. And that's primarily what the center cover team focuses on. And so it's it's... In, in, in writing these stories, moving from one to the next of those three, it's, it's just not possible to, to not write the land as a character. One of the things that really interested me is, is how um, off the, out of, 
public perception these crimes are, and yet when you talk about a hundred million dollar business, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, crime that we don't hear or boo about. Well, I mean, they, they all make the news every year. I mean, there's always every April there's something about ab season starting, and there's there's always an article on poaching, and there's there's generally a bear article or two, um, you know, either bear farming somewhere or or gallbladder being sold. And wait, 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 back up. Bear farming. Beer, beer farming is a practice, not here, but oh. in... Uh, <laughs> I've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, Google it. Oh, it's, that's kind <laughs> of scary. Kind of horrify yourself. They're, <laughs> they're in cages that are, you know, 18 inches tall by 8 feet long, uh, laying on their sides for a lifetime, which is about 12 years in, in that position. But that's that's a different thing. It, the the Your question, or your point, yeah, those things are written about, and, and you do see the occasional thing but it's just it's 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 background noise i think next to the general news you know it's what is it next to iraq or, or a presidential campaign it's just not uh not loud enough uh, well, one thing i'd like all of you to just speak out and tell me is um, when you're writing mysteries set in a place, how accurate do you need to be, and how are there times when you actually need to be inaccurate to mask where you're writing about? <laughs> because maybe you don't want somebody to know you're writing about them or their place or their restaurant. Uh, Nina. Yeah, I felt that one's keyed up for me a little bit. Um, the the uh, the Holiday Bowl, which as you mentioned at the very beginning, is is renamed. Um, this was basically the birthplace of of my book. You know that that you could uh, that there could be a restaurant and bowling alley where um, you could go in and get sushi and hot links on the same menu, um, where you could get jambalaya and yakisoba, which was reflective of the African American and the Japanese American clientele. And in the first few um, printings of the novel, I had renamed it the Family Bowl. Um, because I actually had, not because I wanted to disguise it, but because I had taken liberty with some of the facts um, about, you know, the year that it opened. Um, and I didn't want someone to say, well, you know, that's inaccurate. But, um, but once the, pla the place was destroyed to make room for a, uh, a Walgreens and a Starbucks, um, because there are not enough of those in Southern California, the world. And um, it was just a devastating blow to the community. And, and when that happened, I, in future print printings, um, renamed, restored the real name of, of the Holiday Bowl uh, as a kind of, of tribute to the, to the place. When you had, when it was named the Family Bowl, did you, did the people who own the Holiday Bowl say, hey, this is us? Everybody knew where it was. I mean, it was a very special place that was written about, you know, actually when it closed, it was written about in the New York Times even as this, uh, you know, this, this cultural icon place that had, that was lost. So, I, and I very openly talked about where it was. You know, the Crenshaw District is small. Um, there's not another place like this. So, um, it, it's not, I was just trying to, you know, kind of cover um, that, that I, you know, to, to make an excuse for having changed the year that it opened and things. Although it's now a, a a different kind of issue with my new book where um, I found out almost after I'd written the book but before it was published that um, you know for example that there's a scene that takes place in the Pasadena Playhouse and my scene takes place in 1917 and I discovered later that the place actually hadn't opened until you know 1920 something but by that point I was so in love with the you know it was so ingrained in my imagination as the place where the scene took place that I just couldn't I just couldn't change it so but although I did write acknowledge that in the acknowledgments that I had you know made uh, a change in history for my own vile purposes. <laughs> As Lori says, we, you, you are fiction. 
yeah. we, 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 we lie for a living, yes. Yeah, I think, I think that I probably, like most, like most writers, um, if I am writing a specific place, um, I make sure that I get it right. <clears throat> I check my facts. I check to make sure that, you know, I, I haven't got something opening in 1917 and it's 1919 in the plot. Um, but if I am shifting things around, if I am adapting them for my own purposes, I usually change names. Um, so that in, in the art of detection, there's areas that are named and are specific so that when they're staying at a hotel, you know that it's, you know, if, if I name it, it's accurate. If I don't name it, it's an adaptation. It's a combination of different places. Every place that you set a novel, no matter where it is, has a, a particular climate and, and, you know, beautiful and balmy in Napa maybe not so beautiful and balmy or smoggy and <laughs> unky in, in Los Angeles or hot, and you've got San Francisco with fog and rain, and you're up and down the California coast. Could you talk about the influence of climate and how you check and write about climate and, and how it changes the character? I mean, somebody who works in a rainy place all the time is probably going to be a gloomy Gus, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't find San Franciscans gloomy just because they're in the fog all the time. Um, what, one of the problems that I find if I'm doing historical stuff is normally you can find out what the weather was like on any given day. And I, I, I used to try and match my characters with that. And I, after a while, I thought, you know, honestly, no, <laughs> nobody out there is going to look up the weather on <laughs> April 24, 1926. So really, they're really just not going to do it. So if I need it to rain, by God, it's going to rain. <laughs> Could you talk about the climate of uh, Napa? Certainly. In fact, that it's had a big influence on the books, um, largely because my main character, Sonny McCoskey, is a cook. She has a restaurant, and she's very into her local organic uh, produce. And so season makes a great big difference to what she's doing with her time. Um, the first book, Sharpshooter, is set at harvest time. So it's, you know, um, like right at the end of August, beginning of September, and it's, you know, hot, and the roads are dusty, and everyone's bringing in the grapes, and this is, you know, what's going on. The time of year has a tremendous impact on what's going on in just her, um, the sights, sounds, smells, what she's doing, what she's cooking. You know, if it's summer, they're at the farmer's market. You know, if it's uh, a Death by the Glass is a book that was in the middle of winter, so there are lots of um, sort of uh, big handmade pastas and you know, mushroom, mushroom sauces, it's all about mushrooms and, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. So it has a big impact. Uh, Kirk, could you talk, tell me about how weather plays a part? Because it must, it, certainly, you're a seasonal guy there with the abalone season. And Well, except the this, this stories are moving along fairly, you know, the timeline is X many days and, and it's all happening fairly fast. I mean, I think the weather's probably better at just, helping demonstrate the, the, the metal or perseverance of the uh, characters and, and or the determination of, of the opposite side to succeed. But it sure it also lets the reader see more of the landscape, certainly. Well, your, your character, character is, works in the Special Operations Unit of the Department of Fish and Games, which I think most game, which I think most people did not even know existed. <laughs> I didn't know it existed. I, you know, I made a phone call to Fish and Game and found out they existed, and then and then kind of chased the captain that was running it with phone calls for a little while before he was very kind enough to 
to call back. And and uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think that. Although once you tuned into it, once you get tuned into them, then you then you see the the bus that show up um, four or five times a year. They get covered, and and um, occasionally I hear them on NPR, if, if for example. Oh, one thing that 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 uh, interests me is did you since a lot of this takes place you know uh, with abalone fishing did you yourself go abalone fishing <laughs> i know i'm not a, not an ab diver mm-hmm. and and for that reason I, I avoided writing an ab diving scene in the novel because there are a lot of a lot of ab divers out there you know i kind of got it in my head all right this is something i've never done i always wanted to do i'll do this i bought a wetsuit got stuff got in the swimming pool you know and I, and I got so far and then and then just working other things overrode it so i've certainly been around it you know I, in april i rode up the coast for a couple of days with uh, uh went up with kathy ponting who runs the team now and kathy uh dove on the way up uh at a cove near fort bragg but and certainly, growing up in California, in Northern California, you, you're around ab diving, but I am not an ab diver. Well, you know that California coastline is is really iconic and kind of uh, uh, well well known. How do you approach the the minute detail aspect of this, where you know there's a rock there's a rock formation here, there's a bay there. Well, I think it's, you know, when you think about driving and you think about a long trip, you, you have certain landmarks that you've, you've become somewhat familiar with. And, and along the coast, there, there are enough of those to where it's possible to take one and then make up the next stretch and, and, and have the reader with you. You know, if you've gone in a trustworthy way, noting this landmark, that chapter, this landmark, this, 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 and then maybe something I hadn't seen on the drive. You know, you, you, it actually, I think, gives you license to do quite a lot. Nina, uh, I was wondering, um, your, your setting is pretty different from both Napa and the California coastline. It's really urban, and, and so uh, part of the character of uh, any urban place are, are, are the people who, who live there, the throngs of the crowds. Could you talk about like writing about crowds and, and and just the kind of being part of the anonymous, the anonymity of the people in the city that surround you? Well, it's it's interesting because it's actually you know there there aren't crowds in in either of the, the first two books really. Uh, part of what I really wanted to show that this book that's set in Crenshaw, and then the first book that's set in Inglewood is that these are neighborhoods that that aren't often written about. Um, and are kind of you know seen as as um, not desirable as inner city, um, as rough as dangerous. And I wanted to show that in fact there's tremendous beauty um, in these areas. Um, and if you know if you drive through, particularly in in the time frame that that the early part of Southland takes place, um, you know this wasn't city. That that it it was all it was you know marshland. Uh, people would go hunting for for pigs and and uh, you know wild pigs and and uh, and ducks and things. Um, the hills were were beautiful and, and wild. People would fish in them. And so one of the interesting things about this neighborhood was that all the way until the the 60s, it was large you know 50s, 50s, 60s. There were still these these rather wild parts to it. So now it is it is more residential with some some business, but it's still not a, a hugely um, impacted place. 
Um, but I, you know, I, I wanted to show the way that that, um, that neighborhoods develop, um, the way that that people are able to um, become a part of something that's larger than themselves. One of the things that was magical about Crenshaw is that you had this this mixture of races and a relatively small amount of strife. Um, which is not something that's usually depicted when you talk about communities of color, especially. Um, so I really wanted to, get, to give a demonstration of, of a place that was special in that way. If you're in Crenshaw, it's, it's beautiful. You know, the, the, the hills in the background and the snow-covered mountains, and, and uh, it actually is, you know, and the, the Los Angeles version of urban anyway is much more spread out than, you know, even San Francisco, where, where there's, you know, more, more concrete and, and, uh, and much more density. So... Um, I, I haven't done, you know, like a New York-style street scene with a lot of lot of people in it. There's a little bit more of that in, in my new book, but um, for the most part, these are, are are neighborhoods that that blend in interestingly with the landscape around them. Uh, Lori, your book's set in San Francisco, and you you set di- in different parts of of San Francisco too uh, during the the earthquake, which was it, uh, based again on some personal history of yours during the 1906 earthquake. We're talking about the art of detection. Uh, well, no, I, actually I'm talking about yeah, back uh, lock locked room? rooms. Locked rooms, yeah. Just uh, uh, as, a, yeah. as evoking the place, that was, that was a... Uh, uh, I'd be scared there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I think it was I don't think so. Oh my God, <laughs> I forgot the book. Um, yeah, I, I've written about various aspects of San Francisco in, in the books. Um, Locked Rooms deals with one of the, um, the with the, the other series from Art of Detection, the Mary Russell series, and there are sections in that that cover um, three different periods in San Francisco's history. You have the 1906 quake, and you have um, her memory in 1913-14, and then the so-called present, 1924. And, I mean, it's fascinating to look at a section of city that's built in layers like San Francisco. So that when I'm later, the, you know, the following year when I was writing The Art of Detection, and you have this character who is, I mean, she's a cop, she's a modern day cop, and she sees San Francisco as it is today with areas that are almost strictly resi- residential, there are other areas that are strictly commercial, and there are big stretches of it that are mixed. So she sees San Francisco today, um, but when she goes back into the 1924 period, um, you, get a, you get a sense of the bones of the city, how um, San Francisco reinvented itself following the disastrous fire of 1906 that, that wiped out the entire downtown and, and then rebuilt on precisely the same foundations um, where it had been. So it's, San Francisco is in a way more accessible in its layers than a lot of other cities because it has such a short life. I mean, it, it, when, when Richard Henry Dana came through in 1830s, uh, you know, there was nothing there but a few shacks and, and a couple fishing boats. And then, of course, in the 1840s, you get this huge influx of people so that again and again the city is built, is burned, is destroyed, and builds itself again. So, I mean, as far as a novelist goes, San Francisco is just a gorgeous city to write about because it's, you know, any, anything you want to say, you can find a place that fits. 
one of the things all of you as writers are doing when you're writing, setting your novels in these particular places is you're capturing them before they're destroyed. Uh, <laughs> Kirk, could you talk? Uh, uh, I think that's debatable, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, before they are turned into, paved over with Walgreens and Starbucks. Uh, Kirk, your work deals most in the, the natural world. Could you talk about how the changes, I mean, within the legislation to the park system make a lot of big, make a huge difference in the way this yeah, I mean, look? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about crime fiction it, I, that I think is so great is it's, uh, I don't know, it's like an army without a general. There's all, all these, all writing going all kinds of different directions. And, and one aspect of that is it's possible to write about anything and, and you can kind of record something also the times that, that we live in what what i what i've tried to do with with these uh stories with with marquez is just kind of get the land as as best that i can as it was when these stories were written and get from uh fish and game who have lived it for years and years is you know what they've really seen in the way of change and where they see it going and, and what's out there right now, and, and, and try to get a little bit of that in without slowing the story down. Um, Nadia, could you talk about uh, the changes that are occurring, like at a pretty uh, light speed in in Napa? I mean, it, it. You mean the development that's occurring? Sure, there's yeah. a lot of development, it's, and it's yeah. it's changed from. It's yeah, it's definitely uh, it's changing as quickly as the rest of California, I guess. Um, I mean, there's something. As a novelist, you, you're an archivist, kind of, I think, by definition, you're capturing something and preserving it. And I think in Napa, um, there are several things that I'm attempting to cap- capture that may or may not be vanishing. One of them is simply a moment. You know, there's this sense that we're at a golden peak, you know, and not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, you never really know if you're right, but there's this sense when you, even, you're just driving up, you immediately have this feeling and I know it's not just me because when I drive up with friends they feel it too as soon as you you know hit highway 29 something sort of magical happens and you feel like oh I'm part of something really extraordinary it's it's just breathtakingly breathtakingly beautiful and there's this excitement of um something that's still new and yet um has reached a certain level of maturation you know people are they're making really fantastically great wines, but they haven't been doing it for hundreds of years yet. So everyone's still really excited about it and in love with the land and looking around. So there's that, and I'd like to capture that moment. That's a big part of what I'm trying to do in the books. And then what you mentioned that, you know, the, um, the land trust up there works tirelessly to preserve the green space, what there is of it. And um, it's a constant battle. I, I'm always surprised when I realize how continuous that battle is and how close it is to being lost at all times because it would seem evident to everyone how important it is to preserve that, important economically, important in every way. I mean, if you want that life to continue, you've got to preserve a green space or it just doesn't work. And yet it is constantly threatened. And you know, every time I drive up, there's a new subdivision you know, on land that is absolutely fantastic for growing just about anything. I mean, sure, you can grow grapes, but you could grow pretty much anything, and it's got another strip mall or another subdivision on it. But, yeah, so that's... I really genuinely hope that uh, we never have to drive through a paved Napa Valley, but it gets a little closer every day. 
You know, just speaking to what you're saying, uh, abalone bear sturgeon, it's, it's unlikely that abalone or sturgeon will survive. I mean, they're, they're, they're slow breeders and they're, and they're gradually going away right now. And it's, it's bears, bears got fur, it looks great on TV. It's, they, they proliferate and they're, you know, they're doing pretty, pretty darn well in California, but the other two, odds aren't, aren't, aren't very good. And so, yeah. They're going away. <laughs> it's interesting. One thing that, that strikes me is that in California and in much of America, we live, have, have urban spaces and inhabited spaces in real close proximity to really wild spaces. Uh, and Nina, you were talking about this. And, and Lori, you talk about this in, in your book, The Art of Detection, the, the portions that are set on the, the Marin headlands, which are, you know, it, it, it's a really wild and desolate place, but it's not far from a really wild and desolate, not so desolate city. And, and it was a very close thing um, not to have that entire area developed. I mean, it was, it was very, very close, and it was only due to the the very hard work of several senators um, yeah. that the entire Marin Headlands is not uh, under houses now. Nina, could could you talk about the proximity of the the wild to to the suburban and urban in, in Los Angeles? I mean, I just read uh, yesterday there was a, a cougar under JPL <laughs> roaming the roaming the uh, the canyons of JPL, and it looked pretty big and scary. Well, I was just there last weekend, so I'm glad that the cougar waited until this week to make his walk. <laughs> um, it, it actually, the, the interface, and, and thank, you know, I didn't know that about Marin. Thank God for whoever it was that, that helped to, to make that fight. I can't imagine not having the, the headlands. Um, in LA, it's, you know, it's, it's more compressed. The, 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 the nature is right there, the beach. Um, my, my particular love is the mountains. So, you know, I live about five minutes from downtown LA, but about 10 minutes from the base of the San Gabriel Mountains and all the, you know, the, the hundreds of, of thousands of acres of, of hiking um, there. But it's in a direct interface. Um, you know, there are, uh, I had a friend who had a, a mountain lion. Um, this is a different mountain lion, Kirk. We'd been talking about mountain lions earlier. <laughs> um, in, her, um, in her backyard in the Hollywood Hills. I've seen uh, deer. I have friends who live at the base of the mountains who have bears just walk down, you know, come out of the mountains and walk down their street and, you know, say hello and walk, walk back up. Um, so it, it is, it's a little too close, I think, for nature. You know, one of the sad things about going to my local mountains, even though I, I love to go there to hike, is that, that it's, it's so close that it's like a, you know, it's almost become a suburb of, of L.A. Um, it's, it's too impacted. It's, you know, there's, there's trash. There's, you know, too many people. Um, obviously not great in terms of the impact on, on the wild animals because when the bears do come down, you know, and, and go to people's houses and take trash, they're destroyed, you know, often. And it's, it's, uh, it's very sad, um, you know. And then, but every once in a while nature, you know, gets back at us as as uh, as we find out every fire season when the people who've built houses right at that at that interface um you know uh, lose them um oh and i didn't even mention the coyotes who are so normal that uh, we don't even make note of them so kirk one of the things uh, about your books is that 
the landscape itself must must work directly into the plotting of the of the novel. Could you talk about how specific landscape features might determine the way you're you have well, to plot the novel? I mean, <laughs> there, there are crime fiction novels that rotate. There's this undercover team, and the novels rotate around poaching plots, and they're all in a relatively closed area. So, in in order to, to even get why you know, what's going on and, and why, why it should matter to all this protagonist, it's, it's necessary to, to make the habitat and make the, make the country or try to make the country and then tell the story. And it's the nature of the novel. Uh, Nadia, uh, in your novels, do, do particular like aspects of the landscape dictate the way you have to plot it, the, the way it, um, the way that things happen. I mean, there's a mountain here that matters. <laughs> That's going to stop somebody from getting, in, in particular, between uh, Sonoma and Napa. I mean, those mountains are a good little keeper away. Yeah, they definitely define a space. That's for sure. Um, you know, I guess what you're getting at maybe is that it does dictate story in that um, where Sunny goes and at what time. That's it's impacted by the fact that she's. You know, you do. There are only a couple ways over the mountains, so you have to. You've got a pretty good drive ahead of you, one way or the other. Um, the other thing I would say about that is, I guess while Lori was talking, I was thinking how San Francisco figures in my books, sort of like the elephant in the room that no one's talking about or that they reference occasionally. That you know, every once in a while, someone mentions having been in the city that day, and we never really talk about it too much. But it's always sort of this. It's this thing that's out there that you could almost get to, but it's just far enough driving that. People don't, they don't commute, they don't spend a lot of time there, but, you know, it's this sort of, uh, it's a feature in the landscape that they, um, or in their mental landscape, at least, that they're always kind of thinking is there. Um, The other thing that that came to mind when you're asking that was the way that uh, I've heard several people who live in Napa, I myself live in the Bay Area, um, but get up there a lot. Anyway, the people I know who live there full time, several of them them have described the valley as... um, sometimes getting too small and feeling like a canoe you know like oh i'm stuck up here in the canoe wish i could get out you know (laughs) and uh so i think landscape can kind of um work that way too where you feel it's an island a little bit Uh, nina could you talk about how the in a novel set in los angeles uh, the landscape is really the streets <laughs> could you talk about how just the 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 layout of the landscape and the streets does that change the way your novels are plotted or affect the way what what you have to write in terms just in terms of m- the mechanics of getting the characters made to be uh, well, as I write more books, the amount of time they spend driving has increased as the traffic has gotten worse in Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> reflective of the author's frustration of dealing with traffic. But I think it's, um, you know, one of the, the things that, that is interesting and not so great about the city is how, you know, there are a lot of, commu- you know, the whole, the I know that Gertrude Stein actually said this, I think about Oakland, right? The, for, the, the um, there's, there's no there there. Um, or people describe L.A. as 40 suburbs without a, without a city um, center. And it's not so much, there are really specific neighborhoods, but those neighborhoods are largely ignorant of each other. And so, you know, each one is a little bit of, of the, the canoe effect that you talked about. Crenshaw was one, and it was a rather I- idyllic one in that book. Um, Inglewood, Little Tokyo, 
Um, so to go from, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious of when characters jump from one canoe to the other. You know, that the my my young uh, lawyer in, in Southland lives in the Fairfax district, which is its own little hip, you know, happening place. But is is a you know the people in Fairfax even today and the people in Crenshaw have no relationship with each other. So I'm conscious of the movements of places, you know, different between different places of the city, but also how travel has changed. You know, my my new book is set um, even further back in time in the teens and twenties, and at that point, Sunset Boulevard was just a dirt road. Um, Beverly Hills was was like the was as far away as Santa Barbara in most people's eyes, and so the way that the perceptions of space have changed in the city is one thing that is very interesting to me. Um, that that you know it, it now something that takes ten minutes by freeway used to take an hour and a half on a dirt road, and that that you know that, that Los Angeles itself, not just Crenshaw but the whole basin, um, was much more you know it was full of full of farms, was full of orchards, was full of um, green, and and has slowly become filled with uh, with people. I have to leap in on that. That is such an interesting idea, the way that, that space has literally changed. I'll just speak of California because I know that for sure. And Napa, you know, uh, it used to be you never went up to wine country for really the day because it was too far. You really wanted to spend the night once you got all the way up there. I'm speaking of from the Bay Area. I'm, and now, uh, you know, I'll pop up. It takes, you know, 28 minutes from my house <laughs> and I can be in, you know, sitting at a table in Yountville. So, I mean, what happened? It, I don't think it's the people. I think it's literally the roads. and, Or maybe it's just the idea. That we, we've become so acclimated to driving and moving swiftly from place to place that we don't mind, you know? Because I don't know that it can't physically be any closer. I know that. but And it was paved before, and it's still paved. But somehow it's closer now. And I, I think that our... That our expectations we're more ready to drive I, I, an hour drive used to seem might might have seemed interminable at some point now it seems like it's oh, somebody tells me they have an hour commute so what I, mean, right. I know people who have a three-hour commute. <laughs> it's, it's cha- our perceptions have changed. Yeah, I remember talking to someone one time about um, the, their East Coasters, the, the other end of the country, and um, they were so- talking about having to drive for an entire hour to go to dinner. And to, to the driver, it seemed like nothing because they were Californians and the people they were with. And you, you want to drive where for dinner? I mean, it takes an hour to get there. And they think, well, so? <laughs> I mean, it's dinner. Why not? Well, some things are important. (laughs) Uh, I'd like you all to talk about um, the the way that you use the level of detail that you bring to it as a a means of changing the experience for the reader. Because in some books, you can have a, a kind of things can be kind of vague, and it and you know where people are and, and that's a one kind of mystery but you all write mysteries that are very much have a lot of detail in it and change the, the reading experience and I presume the writing experience at Kirk yeah well, it, you know it, for me it comes back to that these these plots do or these stories do rotate around a, a fairly um, the landscape is Necessary. To, it's necessary to see the landscape in order to get the story, and 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 I think you just have to come at that like you come at other things. You 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 gradually take things in, and then and then the details begin to separate, and certain detail, details become more important. And as they become more important, then 
then it hopefully is in sync with, with the way that the story is also unfolding. And I think that's, in, in, in order to try to communicate that why this, why what this character Marquez is trying to do matters, it, it's necessary to kind of unwrap it that way. And, and making one thing more, more whole, the land, and un, unfolding the, the plot. Nina, could you talk about the the level of detail when you when you when do you crank it up and when do you ratchet it back? I think you you know the, there's kind of like the 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 very close shot and the medium range or, or further shot, and it depends on how important that moment is to the story. And it's not just about detail; it's even about the amount of time you spend on a particular scene. Um, if it's something that's really crucial, you're not going to just brush over it. You're going to spend time on it because that is really an important part of of, of what's happening in the story. So, with the same kind of, you know, I, I have as a reader, kind of insatiable curiosity. You know, I want to know every detail about, you know, how, what is the process of winemaking or or what is what. Do you, how, ab diving like that's such a cool little you know abbreviate i'd love to know i mean i know you don't you haven't written this scene but i now i want to read it you know or the, or the history of san you know some of the historical stuff of san francisco my wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> um so as a as a writer i like to fill in things that i that i hope that other people will find interesting you know for example with with this book um southland it was very interesting for me to discover some historical parts of, of L.A. and the racial history of L.A., like the fact that Santa Monica Beach was once segregated with you know, with Jim Crow-style, whites-only, colored-only signs on the beach. This is not something that you learn growing up in Los Angeles as part of the, the history no. of the city. <laughs> and it's that was fascinating to me. And, and it was also very crucial to the story. So I worked that detail into a key scene in, in the novel. Um, so I, I tend to like detail, but it's, it's got to be in service to the story. Nadia, when do you know or decide to mention a specific restaurant or a specific street or a specific cool spot? I mean, Napa is filled with places that are very, very, you know, known around the world. And right. so you ha have to be careful, I guess, in choosing when to, to mention those things. And maybe you have to pay attention to copyright. Yeah, that would copyright. Your <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, actually, while Lena was talking, I was thinking that this comes up a lot in relation to wines that Sonny is drinking. And, you know, um, I guess my guide, I use her as my guide. The, the books are written third, per, third person, but it's a very close narration with her perspective. So you're, you know, it's, it's not first person from her perspective, but almost. And as I go along, I, I adhere to when it's important to her. You know, if it's, sometimes she's in a fictional place, having a fictional meal, drinking a fictional glass of wine. Sometimes... She's at Bouchon, and she's drinking, you know, a glass of Schaefer. She's got something really particular in her hand, and when that matters to her, that's when it goes on the page. And that it sounds odd, like, well, how in the heck would you know the difference? Because it's fiction. But you know, when you're following the thread of a story, things sort of naturally fit or they don't fit. Um, you know, for example, often we're at her house. You know, she's come home from being, you know, chased by some serial killer or something. I don't know. And you want to, you want to relax and have a glass of wine. You know, so no, in those cases, I really imagine her in her kitchen and I watch her. And okay, does she just pour a glass of whatever's open in the fridge, 
or does she select something carefully or you know at her house whatever's open in the fridge might be something it's it's going to be something chosen very specifically she's not an accidental eater or drinker i mean she's everything is very intentional because that's her that's her art so you know i I normally put that in the book but sometimes it's fictional and sometimes it's the real thing now laura you talked about uh changing the level of detail and mentioning the one thing something things that only one in ten people would notice in your books yeah I I think that if you're writing fiction you have to pay attention to pacing of course and there are times when detail gets in the way because you are in an action mode and other times where you have to allow the poor reader to catch his or her breath Um, John Gardner pointed out that detail is the lifeblood of fiction and we who write crime fiction deal with blood more than anyone else. So I, I personally would say that most crime fiction, most mysteries and thrillers, um, pay a lot of attention to specific detail. I think that's the only way of writing crime fiction. If you write generalizations, you're missing the clues, if nothing else. And with that clue, we'll conclude. We've been speaking with Nadia Gordon, Kirk Russell, Nina Ravoir, and Lori King. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.